All right, turn your Bibles tonight to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, if you will. We're going to read this verse here in just a second. I'm going to split this up, this lesson I'm going to split into two, uh, just because it's, it's a little bit lengthy and um, uh, it's, we can definitely get two out of it as far as uh, the amount of things that we need to talk about in this lesson. So uh, next week, uh, next week, Brother Josh, and uh, actually the next two Wednesday nights, will be gone, so Brother Josh is going to cover and, uh, and do a couple lessons on Wednesday night. Brother Brian is going to be preaching on Sunday mornings and, uh, and Sunday nights. Jason Brothers, my brother-in-law, is going to come up here and preach on the second Sunday night that we're gone. So a good lineup for you while we're, while we're gone. And then we'll, so you'll have to remember what we talk about tonight because uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to pick up. But we're coming back in on Tuesday morning, I think, at 10 o'clock on, on uh, February the 28th. So March the 1st is that following Wednesday. So you might want to be here. There's no telling what you're going to get. Uh, on that Wednesday night, but um, uh, anyway, we talked last week, uh, kind of the, you know, the context of really the brief history of, of bi- the biblical fundamental movement, the bi- biblical fundamentalist movement, and so what I want to look at tonight is a, little, is, is a little bit more of these specific truths that are under attack. In fact, let's look at our, our text there, and, and I've got a lot of verses for you tonight, so as many of these as you can turn to, I've got a lot of them up there on the screen as well, so that way... Uh, if you can't turn to all of them, there's not tons, but um, if you can't turn to it, at least you can write it down and maybe go back and look at it later. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15 says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now we stop, we stop a lot of times to be ready always to give an answer to every man. And I, and I think that, I mean, it's, it fits within that context. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with saying that, but... Basically, what this is, is we have, there is an outside world, there's an unsaved world that's looking at us. And if we can't articulate what we believe, if we can't articulate what this hope is that we have, then we, we're missing out on a huge part of what Christianity is. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh, asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. So what's the message of the biblical fundamentalist? What truth, what, what truth is worth contending for? If we're talking about contending for the faith, what are we talking about when we're talking about that? Um, and why is it so important that we guard ourselves and guard our church from liberalism and rationalism and all the other isms that are out there that are threatening the way of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me uh, revisit our example or illustration from last week about the basketball, right? The basketball game and, and uh, the fundamentals of basketball are dribbling and shooting and, you know, um, defense and offense and a lot of different other things. And, and uh, obviously, uh, when you go back to those fundamentals, it doesn't make you a radical. It just makes you getting, it just means that you are, a student of the game, and that you're, you're serious about making sure you're playing the game the right way. But if we go back and, and look at that illustration, and uh, m- maybe think for a minute that instead of dribbling a basketball, we decide we're going to kick the basketball instead. And instead of having the hoop at 10 feet, we're going to lower it and put it at ground level. Instead of having it the same width as, a, uh, as the cylinder that you see on the basketball hoop, we're going to make it quite a bit bigger. And uh, then, then we'll actually make the floor a little bit wider as well, a little bit longer, add a few more players well, you don't have basketball anymore. You have soccer, right? It may resemble a few of those things because you still have the, the uh, you know, a court and you still have a basketball and you still have other things, but you don't have basketball anymore. You have a soccer game that's going on. 
And, uh, you know, there might be some slight similarities, but in actuality, we've literally changed the sport by changing just a few of the simple fundamentals. And so the same thing is true when it comes to these truths that are central to the Christian faith. So much so that when you alter them or when you vary from them or when you reinterpret them, you no longer have true Christianity. And that's exactly what we're seeing happening uh, really across the entire spectrum. But even, um, and, and what's probably most alarming, is that you're seeing it happen within so-called independent fundamental Baptist churches. They're changing the fundamentals of the faith and still trying to call themselves independent fundamental Baptists at the same time. And you can't have both. You may have a variation that slightly resembles Christianity, but if you've lost the central principles, then you've lost the faith. Uh, the difference is that we're not simply playing a game, right? The, the stakes are so much higher than that. We're not, we're not doing this for points. We're doing this for eternity. This is about truth. The eternal destiny of the souls of men and women are at stake. And when we, if we get this wrong, or if we change the fundamentals, and we change what Christianity is, then uh, there's, there's a serious eternal consequence. Truth is not negotiable. It's not abstract, right? Truth does not change with political pressure. It doesn't change with secular whims. It doesn't change with cultural decline. God's truth is eternal. It's unchanging. It's absolute. And I mentioned this before. You don't find your truth, right? There is no, well, this is, you know, you just, you just live your truth. Seeing that all over the place now. No, there's not your truth, there's truth, and there's your opinion. That's it. And a lot of what people are promoting as their truth is just their opinion about the truth. And they've changed, they've changed both. And so um, on a personal level, this truth is very powerful. And when I say personal, I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about us individually. This, this truth has the power to transform your life from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. And this truth will enable you to be born into God's family, become a new creature in Christ, experience the unsearchable riches of God's grace now and for all of eternity. Just mere words cannot describe the importance of the divine power of these truths, the fundamentals of the faith. So what are they? Some of these are going to overlap a little bit with what we've talked about when it comes to being a Baptist, but for the most part, we're talking about what it means to be a fundamental Baptist. So almost assuming that all the things that we've already talked about uh, when it comes to that whole acrostic that we've gone through on the Baptist distinctives are already set in place. These things then are uh, things that we'd find inside. So tonight, I want to give you the second, or at least start the second of what we are uh, doing in this little mini-series on the offshoot of, of what it means to be a Baptist, uh, the meaning of biblical fundamentalism. And that's what we talked about last week, but what I want to give you tonight and then uh, in a couple of weeks when we get back together on this, is the message of biblical fundamentalism or the message of the biblical fundamentalist. So number one, and, and I think uh, I, I, I probably should ask you, what do you think they are? But then we'd be all over the, all over the place and, and uh, yes, we're going to get to that next week and yes, that's one of them and whatever else. But uh, the first one, if, if, you had to, if you had to guess, you'd probably all get this one right and that is the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures. Right? And we talked about that, biblical authority. That's the number one thing that makes us Baptists. We're not going off of any other uh, creeds or any other books or any other anything. The Bible is our final authority. So turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Fundamental Christians believe 
that the Bible is inspired. And when I say inspired, it literally is God-breathed. Now, obviously, um, you know, some of the ways that we can tell who wrote the books of the Bible is that, well, sometimes they say, I wrote this book, and, or I dictated this book, and this guy wrote it, uh, wrote it out. Or, you know, uh, they refer to themselves as I in there, and you can tell exactly who it is. And then, of course, you see they all have different personalities and everything else. So how did God write the Bible if, he, if, he, if these men were actually the ones that did it? Well, the Bible says the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God used their personalities. God used their writing styles. God used their lingo, if you will. But God gave them exactly what to write. And that's what it means when we say that the Bible is inspired. And it's, it's the only, uh, it, is, it only is the word of God. We believe that the Bible is, is to be received, to be believed, and to be followed literally as the very Word of God. For a biblical fundamentalist, the Word of God is the final authority, and that's what, God's, that's what the Bible says about, about His truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed. That's what that word inspiration means. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the men of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, Hebrews, turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, because Hebrews tells us that the, the Word of God is more than just a book. It's not just a collection of, of great ideas or great teaching or moral codes or, you know, great proverbs or just a book of psalms. You know, it, it is all of those things, but it's a living book. I remember hearing a, uh, a story of Charles Spurgeon one time. Uh, he set the book down and he said, it's alive, it's alive. And he was acting you know, almost like it was a snake or something like that. But it is, it's, uh, it's alive, it's, it's explosively powerful, has the ability to transform our lives. And that is the reason why you can read the Bible through every single year for, you know, for your entire life and you're still going to get something new out of it every time you read it. It's because it's a living book. And it's, it's God that is speaking through his word every single time you read it. It's not like, you know, well, Jackson, where's Jackson? He's in the back. Um, I, I don't know how old he was, probably first or second grade, but he got a hold of a book, or we gave him a book on uh, Pistol Pete. And uh, I think it was like 400 and how many pages? 475 pages, something like that. And first grade, second grade, he read through this entire book. And, uh, and then he picked it up and read it back through again. And then he picked it up and read it back through again. And I mean, the pages are all twisted and curled. And finally, I said, get a different book. You can't read that one again. He's read the thing like four times about Pistol Pete. And it's an interesting book. But, you know, Pete Maravich had a great testimony of being saved. And he wrote about that. And that's, that's kind of what the whole book was about. Uh, Christ transformed his life. But, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to read a book about the same person over and over and over again. It's another thing to read a living book about the same person over and over and over again. You're only going to get the same information given back to you every time you read a book about Pistol Pete. But when you read the Bible, it's a living book. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12, By the way, this ought to be what we're going for every single time we read the Bible. For the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, that's why it's a living book. He knows what we're thinking when we're reading it. He knows what the intent of our heart is when we're reading it. 
So he can take all of those things and apply it. Hey, when you read the Bible through when you were 15 years old, that's a whole lot different than when you're reading the Bible through at 35, right? Your, your circumstances have changed. Your life has changed. A lot of things are different. And because it's a living book, it can still be applied in that way. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 30, because in addition to this, the Word of God is pure. It's perfect. It's without error. God has preserved His Word for us today. I don't think there are, I, 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 there, there are no errors in the Word of God. Well, you know, they would have been better if they had said this, or if it had, if it had been written this way, right? Everything that, we, uh, that, that critics who, who claim to be errors in the Word of God or contradictions in the Word of God, uh, they're just apparent contradictions. There are, there are no contradictions in the Word of God. Well, what it says, it says this number in this passage, and it's talking about the exact same thing and has a different number. It's just an apparent contradiction. Every one of those contradictions, so-called, so, so, so can be explained. But in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse number 5 says this, Every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Well, there's got to be at least one. Think about how big the Bible is, how many chapters and books and, and words there are in the Bible. Hey, he, he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. We just have to trust that when God says his word is pure, his word is perfect, his word is complete, that he knows what he's talking about. And it takes trust. It takes faith. Because I don't know. I don't know Hebrew and Greek and all of these, you know, Aramaic, like some of the books of the Bible were written in. I don't know all of that. I, don't, I, don't, I can't translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek. I just have to take by faith that God's given us his pure, unadulterated, perfect word. So these passages all teach very clearly that the, the, the fact that God's word is supernatural. It's literally given from God to man, and it has the power to transform our lives. The second thing that is a fundamental of the faith, is the virgin birth. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 7. We've got a couple verses here that I want to look at. If, you're, if you get there quickly, then you can turn over to Luke chapter 1 as well. But the biblical fundamentalist believes that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And this is not just, oh, that's cool. Look, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting. He was born of a virgin. It's absolutely necessary for Jesus Christ to be born of a virgin. And we'll talk about why in just a second, but let's look at a couple verses here that make it very plain that that's what the Bible is talking about, uh, or, or that, that, that uh, this is a fundamental of the faith. Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that's a miracle, right? A virgin cannot conceive. Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 and verse number 26 and this is the story of Gabriel coming to Mary and telling her that she is going to give birth to Jesus Christ. But in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, this is really interesting. I don't want to get into too much because um, I'm going to plan on doing this when we get back from our trip, but obviously we've been doing a lot of study on, on Israel. Uh, do you know that, that the city of Nazareth was only a population of about 400 people? Very, very tiny. I mean, you think about 400 people. We have that many people that live you know, within uh, you know, a quarter of a mile of this place. Nazareth was very, very small, and, so, and that's why even Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I think that's one of the reasons why. It was just such a tiny, backward little place, you know, but... 
one of the one of the many reasons, and and we're gonna we're gonna do a series on this at some point, maybe this year, if not, then maybe the beginning of next. But uh, one of the many reasons that that our church and and me personally use the King James version of the Bible is it it carefully protects the great fundamental doctrines of the Word of God, like the virgin birth. Uh, you start changing words. Words mean things. And things that are different cannot be the same. When you start changing words, you start changing doctrines. And this is a perfect example of that. In several of these modern translations, Mary is referred to as a young woman rather than a virgin. And there's a great difference between a young woman and a virgin, right? If Jesus is born of a young woman, that's not supernatural. People are born of young women all the time. Being born of a virgin is something that's supernatural and has only happened once, and that's with Jesus Christ. So the virgin birth of Christ is foundational to the Christian faith. You take rationalism and liberalism, and what they do is they take away the supernatural incarnation of God, God becoming man. That's what the incarnation is by just reducing Mary to this young woman and Jesus to the natural offspring of another man, right? That, that thinking reduces Jesus from a perfect eternal, only begotten son of the only living God into just some mere mortal man who simply happened to have a keen understanding and, a, and maybe a good teaching style, right? That it changes everything. Because if Jesus was born through the lineage of a sinful man, the Bible says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, then Jesus is in that same line, and he is a sinful man just like we are. If Jesus was not virgin-born, then he's no different than us, and he doesn't have the ability and the power to take away our sins either. So the Christian life is not a philosophy, it's a faith. It's not the product of a, of a good teacher who lived a couple thousand years ago and happened to suffer this, this tragic death at the hand of the Roman authorities. It's, this is, is something so much bigger than that, because the Christian life is a vibrant relationship with a living, resurrected Savior who was born not of man. He was born of God. He was 100% God in the flesh. Jesus didn't have the sinful bloodline of an earthly father flowing through his veins. If he had, he would not have been able to forgive our sins. He was, he was born of God. His bloodline was pure. His bloodline was holy. His bloodline was perfect. Without that scarlet thread of truth, the entire tapestry of the gospel of the word of God falls apart. This virgin birth is absolutely a fundamental of our faith. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, because number 3, another fundamental of our faith, is the blood atonement. And by that I mean that fundamental Christians believe the blood of Jesus Christ is the complete and full atonement for the sins of every man. Jesus Christ had to shed his blood. He, he had to shed his blood on the cross. He couldn't have been killed by hanging. He couldn't have been killed by, uh, you know, uh, strangling or something like that. He had to, his blood had to be shed. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 makes it very clear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And when you start looking at, at these verses that we find in the New Testament that describe that, boy, it gives a whole new picture 
to what we find in the Old Testament of all the sacrifices and all of those things that were done. They were just a picture of what was coming in the New Testament. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no remission. So if Jesus was just, you know, hanged uh, by the neck, and, you know, until dead, then his he would not have shed blood and there would be no remission for those sins. So a lot of pseudo-Christian religions teach a sort of partial atonement. In other words, they claim to believe that Jesus' blood paid for our sins, but then they add works to that atonement. Now, Jesus had to die on the cross. Yes, he had to die on the cross, but then we also have to fill in the blank. I mean, they add all kinds of other things to it, you know? We also have to confess our sins every week. We also have to, you know, do communion. We also have to uh, make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land or, you know, any number of things that they say that has to be done in order to, to have sins forgiven, uh, as though Jesus paid partially for our sins, and we have to make up the rest of that payment by doing things on our own. Well, that, that's, not, that's not atonement. That's not the remission of sins, and that cheapens the death, cheapens the blood of Jesus Christ. I heard a pastor tell a story that he was witnessing to a man, and he shared this, this principle of the full atonement. Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, and that his blood pays for our sins. And he said to this pastor, he said, I've always thought of my relationship with Christ as a 50-50 relationship. He did his part on the cross, but I still have to do my part to earn that payment for my sin. He said, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that it's 100% Christ and 0% me. And the pastor said, absolutely, that's what it is. It doesn't have anything to do with me. I can't work my way to heaven. I can't earn my way to heaven. I, there's nothing that I can do, let alone must do, to earn my salvation. Jesus didn't make a partial payment on the cross. He made a full payment for our sins, and that's why he cried, it is finished. What is he talking about when he said, it is finished? That atonement, that sacrifice, that full payment for our sins. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. That's why the Bible teaches that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. You know what that word propitiation means? It means a full payment. He was that full payment for our sins. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 says this, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now turn over to 1 John. I have two that I want you to see there in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. His blood had to be shed in order to pay for our sins. Had we not sinned, Jesus Christ never would have had to die. Obviously, he knew that Adam was going to sin. He knew that 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 uh, that sin was going to be passed from one person to the next, and he knew that Jesus was going to have to die. Uh, just in his foreknowledge, he knew that. But had we never sinned, he never would have had to die. There was nothing that he would have had to die for, right? First John chapter two and verse number two, and he is the propitiation for our sins, the full payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Go a couple of chapters later in, in chapter 4, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross to pay for our sins. Had we not sinned, he never would have had to die. There is nothing that we can do to earn it. There is nothing that, that we must do to earn it. It's 100% Jesus and 0% me. 
Now, in addition to that, there are some groups that teach that the blood of Jesus Christ was not significant to our redemption. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. I kind of alluded to this already, but they de-emphasize the blood. They say that, that it was his death alone that paid for our sins. The problem with that is that the Bible very clearly tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. How do you get around that? How do you, how do you say that, well, he didn't have to shed blood, he just had to die on the cross, or he just had to die? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Turn over to Acts chapter 20. God has said throughout the Bible that death by the shedding of blood is the payment for sin. And it's, it's, it's for that reason that Jesus became the ultimate, perfect, sinless sacrifice for all sins for all time. When he died and he shed his perfect blood on the cross, his blood became the full payment for our sins once and for all. That's why we only need to be saved once. We don't need to be saved over and over and over and over again. Jesus died once for the full payment of our sins, for the propitiation of our sins. This is what the Bible says in Acts chapter 20, verse number 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own death. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Which he hath purchased with his own blood. His blood being shed was necessary. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 9. There's a lot more scriptures about the importance of the blood of Jesus Christ. I think I, I meant to give them to you as a list, because I'm not going to take the time to read them, but I do, want to, I do want to read Romans chapter 5 and verse number 9. But he says this, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. There's a lot more scriptures that talk about the importance of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'll give them to you quickly if you're writing these down, but Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7, Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 14, Ephesians 1, 7, Colossians 1, 14, Hebrews 9, 12 through 14, 1 John 1, 7, Revelation 1, 5, Revelation 7, 14, Revelation 12, 11, Hebrews 12, 24, lots of other verses. I, I, if you want that list, I'll give them to you later. Uh, but that's, I mean, there's a lot of verses that talk about the blood of Jesus Christ and the fact that he shed that blood for the remission of our sins. Biblical fundamentalists do not believe in salvation by works. We don't believe in salvation by baptism. We don't believe in salvation by religious practice. And we don't believe in partial atonement. We stand on the word of God that Jesus' blood is the only and the full payment for the sins of mankind. Number four, we've got a, a good handful of verses here, most of them in the book of John. So if you want to turn over to John chapter 20, and you can stay there if you, don't, if you can't turn very quickly. But number four is the deity of Jesus Christ. When I say the deity of Jesus Christ, what do I mean by that? Somebody, somebody want to tell me? Miss Barbara? Yeah, everybody? Jesus is God, right? The deity of Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus was not God, then he couldn't do what he did in shedding his blood and paying for mankind and all this stuff. There's been plenty of people who have died as a martyr in their faith, right? Uh, I mean, you, you look at almost any cult you can think of, or, I mean, Joseph Smith died as a martyr for his faith, right? Uh, there's a lot of people who have died as a martyr. Well, Jesus did the exact same thing. He died as a martyr for his faith, if that's how you see him, right? He's not just the same as just some martyr that died for the cause. 
He was God. And that's where we talk about the deity of Jesus Christ. Some people believe that he was a good teacher. He was a man with, with keen insight. He was this profound philosopher. Some people, especially uh, the Jews in a lot of cases, would look at him. Actually, it's very interesting, uh, and, and I say this as a religious zealot, um, but, you know, the Jews don't even recognize Jesus at all. Like, he's not, it, to them, he wasn't just this good teacher or this philosopher or anything like that. He's nothing to them. They, they don't even, they, it's, it's very, very interesting. They don't even know who Jesus is at all. But the reason that, that, that this doesn't make sense is that Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. Right? That's one of the reasons why the, the Jews crucified him in the first place. He was claiming to be God. So he can't be this good man, this great philosopher, this good teacher, but not be God at the same time. Right? Because that's what he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. If he was not God, then he was the biggest fraud that's ever lived in history. Not some good man, not some good teacher, not some great philosopher and all these other things. He, he, he was he was too wise. He was true and pure uh, to be a lunatic, right? He wasn't crazy. Uh, but most of his followers died for what he taught and for what they experienced as he, as he led them personally, right? And, and that's the other thing you think about, too. And I, I don't want to get sidetracked with this, but, you know, the whole idea that they said, well, the disciples came and stole his body. You, you can maybe get away with that hoax for a while, but you know what happened with every single one of the disciples? They were all tortured and martyred for what they believed about Jesus. I mean, you know, if you're trying to carry out a hoax, you're going to go, you'll go far with it, but you're not going to go to the point where you're willing to die for a hoax, right? They, they saw too much, and they knew too much personally about Jesus for them to believe that it was just some hoax that they were trying to pull off or something like that. But biblical fundamentalists take this stand once again with the Bible on this issue. We believe that Jesus Christ was and is literally God. We believe that Jesus was God in a body, God in the flesh, come down to earth to seek and to save that which was lost, you and me. Here's some biblical reasons why we believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Number one, Thomas referred to Jesus Christ as God. Now, I know, you know, anybody could say anything, but I think this is an interesting thing, uh, an interesting point here in John chapter 20 and verse 28. Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. That was after he had done what? Stuck his fingers in the nail hole, stuck his, stuck his hand in the, in the spear hole, if you will. And he said, wow, this re you really are, this really is my Lord and my God. Well, Thomas is one thing, but it's, it's completely different when the Heavenly Father refers to Jesus Christ as God. We see in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, of course, we have in the Gospels as well, uh, you know, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That was at the baptism of Jesus, right? We have all of those passages that we could look at, but I think this one in Hebrews is pretty interesting. But unto the son he saith, now this is God obviously talking, <coughs> unto the son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. God is calling the son God. That's about as clear as it can get that God the Father himself is referring to Jesus Christ as God. Turn over to 1 Timothy 3.16. Keep your finger there in John because we're coming back to it. But 1 Timothy 3.16, the scripture refers to Jesus as God. And I'm just pulling one verse out here and there. There's lots of verses that talk about these things we could, that, we could, 
that we could point to, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to a couple of them here. Without controversy, 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Well, who's it talking about? Jesus Christ, right? But the Bible very plainly calls him God. John 1.1 is another one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, who's the Word? Jesus, right? By the way, the Mormon Bible says the Word was a God. Changes the meaning. That simple, tiny, little, single letter A changes the entire meaning of not just that verse, but the entire Bible with one single letter. Tell me that it's not important when you start changing things in the Word of God and changing versions and everything else. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Scripture says He was God. Now, here's another thing then. Jesus Christ Himself claimed to be God. Turn over to, uh, back to John, chapter 10. I, I'm, I've got several references here in John that we're going to try to cover quickly here. John 10, verse number 30. I and my Father are one. Wow, no wonder they, they uh, crucified Him, Right? They didn't, they didn't believe that. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, but that is, that's some powerful, powerful words. I and my Father are one. I mean, could you imagine if I came in here and said, yeah, me and God are equal, you know? I mean, that, that, that's, that's blasphemy. That's why they said that, because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe that he was God and all those other things, but Jesus Christ himself said, I and my Father are one. John chapter 5, verse number 17 John 5, 17, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Well, John chapter 12, and verse number 45 is another one. John chapter 12, and verse number 45, and he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Well, who sent him? God the Father, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God the Father sent Jesus Christ to this earth. And Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. He's called himself God. John chapter 14. We'll just look at one more for the sake of time. John chapter 14 and verse number 9. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. He's saying, you've seen, you've, if you've seen me and you've watched me work, then you've seen God and you've watched him work. He's doing those works through me. I am God. That's That's huge. But that single doctrine, this single doctrine really is a key litmus test for the false religions. Who do they say Jesus is? Most of them, at the very least, downplay the deity of Jesus Christ. Some of them out and out say that he's not God at all. Christians who believe the Bible literally have always stood for the doctrine that Jesus Christ is God. Let me cover one more tonight. It's pretty quick. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. More than anything, I just want to read a few passages and then we'll be done. Number five is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, hath given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are many. He was on this earth for 40 days after he resurrected, after he rose from the dead, but he was literally seen by over 500 people for 40 days after he resurrected. Right? He personally ate and spoke with the disciples and the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders worked hard to cover up his resurrection, but the verse that we just read actually states that he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs showed himself to great crowds of people. Jesus Christ showed himself alive after his death. I want to look at two more passages. The Bible is very clear that Jesus literally rose from the dead, not just that his spirit was seen around, not his ghost. He literally rose from the dead. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 and Luke chapter 24, and then we'll be done. Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Verse 11. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we'll persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported unto the Jew, among the Jews unto this day. Right? They bought the soldiers off. Now, this is, this is really interesting to me because if a soldier was found sleeping on the job, the, pe the, the penalty for sleeping on the job was death. If they knew that the disciples had come and taken the body, if they knew that this whole thing was a hoax, why would they have told the soldiers Hey, we know you were sleeping on the job. We know that, uh, that you are worthy of death, but instead of putting you to death, we're going to give you money. Here, take this money and just say that they came and took him in the middle of the night. All right? Luke chapter 24. To the world, this is a ridiculous thought, a man literally rising from the dead, right? Uh, liberal scholars constantly are trying to rationalize away the resurrection by saying that Jesus wasn't really dead or by accepting the lie that the disciples stole his body. There's what's known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that for those three days, Jesus was not actually dead. He was just kind of in a coma. So he didn't rise from the dead. He came out of the grave, but he wasn't actually dead, right? But the facts are undeniable that stone was rolled away. The Roman government was, was greatly disturbed by this occurrence. The followers of Jesus Christ after that were willing to die for that which they were eyewitnesses to. Well, Luke chapter 24, verse number 1. Now, upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. By the way, the way they sealed these stones was sealed not in an entrance. It was sealed over the entire doorway. There's no way that you could have gotten to that seal from the inside unless you were strong enough to knock that whole stone over. Well, it wasn't knocked over. It was rolled back, right? Verse, verse number four, verse number three. 
And they entered in and found out the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. See, that the followers of Jesus Christ knew that they had seen the literal resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And that's why they were willing to go all the way to the death for this message. The first century world was turned completely upside down by this, this event, this historic event, Jesus Christ rising from the dead. And more importantly, this event really is the cornerstone of the Christian faith because a Bible-believing Christian who is fundamental in his doctrine will always contend for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can go find the graves of Buddha and Joseph Smith and uh, all of these other guys who claim to be leaders of what's now worldwide religions. You can see their graves. Jesus' grave, even though they don't know exactly where it is, although they think they know now, has nothing in it. And there's a reason why. Because he didn't, he didn't stay in there for long. He only borrowed it for a couple of days, and then he came up out of that grave, and that was the end of it. That was, that was the beginning of the, the, uh, the message of the gospel. And that's something that's that so special that we have that no other religion in the world has. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those fundamentals of the faith. We'll talk about a few more when we get back together next time. But uh, I encourage you to be here next week. Brother Josh, I've, I've heard preaches a lot better when there's more people here. So uh, the, the type of message you get depends on how many people are in the, in the auditorium next week. So come out here and be a part of that. Pray for us while we're gone as well, uh, just for safety. You never know what could happen, especially over there. The, um, uh, I'm sure you've heard about the, the earthquake that happened, and um, it's not all that far from where we are going to be. Uh, the land of Israel and all this stuff is kind of on the southwestern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, and where this uh, earthquake happened is really in the, in, the, in the northwest corner of the Mediterranean Sea, right up in that area. So it's, it's, it's in Turkey and Syria, kind of where they, where they meet. It's, it's, you know... I mean, it's, it's a decent little hike from where we're going to be, but not all that far. So anything could happen, obviously, that area is a hotbed, too, right now with all the, uh, uh, the tension between the, the, the uh, Muslims and the Jews and all of that stuff. So I, I know people go there uh, all the time, and, um, you know, they come out of there just fine. But just, just pray for us while we're gone, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing what we're going to see over there and then being able to show you. I, I think it's going to open up the Bible in a whole new way. And... Uh, Depending on how everything goes, maybe within, I don't know, three years or so, we'll try to put together a trip and, and uh, get everybody over there that wants to go. But we'll see what happens, Lord willing. Let's pray, and then we'll be done for tonight. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for uh, the fundamentals of the faith. I pray that no matter what culture says, no matter what society says, no matter what other churches are doing, that you help us to stand for the truths of the word of God that we wouldn't waver, we wouldn't bend, and that uh, we'd be found faithful when you come back. I pray that you just give us a good week the rest of the week, and thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen.